so funny. You preach a message on hurry. Confess, repent, and then God gives it to you, right? Um, he's a good God. He's a good God. I invite uh, you to turn to Joshua chapter 22. We're down to three chapters left. I'm not sure when we're going to get to the last two chapters here uh, because of uh, the weeks ahead. Um, but uh, this, this passage here is a fascinating one. It's, it's on conflict and it's on division. And uh, I think it could probably be relevant to our lives. Um, I suspect that all of us at some point are in conflict or have experienced conflict, division. Um, I think this story may be interesting to see how this plays out. Maybe compare your life, your stories uh, that you're in and see how this one uh, relates. So Joshua 22 verse 1 says this, at, at that time Joshua summoned, summoned the Reubenites, the Gadites, and the half-tribe of Manasseh. And he said to them, you've kept all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you and have obeyed my voice and all that I've commanded you. You've not forsaken your brothers these many days down to this day, but have been careful to keep the charge of the Lord your God. And now the Lord your God has given rest to your brothers as he promised them. Therefore, turn and go to your tents in the land where your possession lies, which Moses, the servant of the Lord, gave you on the other side of the Jordan. Only be very careful to observe the commandment and the law that, the Moses, that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you to love the Lord your God to walk in all his ways and to keep his commandments and to cling to him and to serve him with all your heart and with all your soul. So Joshua blessed them and sent them away and they went to their tents. Now to the one half of the tribe of Manasseh, Moses had given a possession at Bashan, but to the other half, Joshua had given a possession beside their brothers in the land west of the Jordan. So Manasseh split in half. Some stayed on one side of the Jordan, some stayed on the other side. And when Joshua sent them away to their home or, and blessed them, he said to them, go back to your tents with much wealth, with very much livestock, with silver, gold, bronze, and iron, and with much clothing. Divide the spoil of your enemies with your brothers. The end has come for two and a half tribes. And their journey, they've all done this together, but uh, there's this party scene that's happening. Everybody's happy. The land is at rest. They've conquered the land in as much as they uh, had, the Lord had led them to conquer that time because God, God brought a time of rest there. It wasn't all conquered. But the, everybody had fought the battle. It was done. And now for their season, they were going to go home and settle the land. And so these two and a half tribes actually had their lands east of the Jordan. It was conquered first, and, and they stuck around for seven years, actually were required by God, and said, hey, we have no problem with that at all. It wasn't like they had to twist their arm. And so they've been with them seven years doing this, I guess, battling together to take the land. And now it's done. It's a big party. It's a big celebration. Everybody's happy, and now we're all saying goodbye. And so they're all saying goodbye. All right, I'll text, right? I'll call. Emoji, emoji, happy, right? Um, those kind of things. And, and making their promises, and they're getting to go back to their land, the two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. And, and then we get to this 
verse 9. So the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh, you're going to hear this over and over again, returned home, parting from the people of Israel at Shiloh, which is in the land of Canaan, to go to the land of Gilead, their own land, which they had possessed, by, possessed themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. Let me just read this again. This verse right here, I, I think, is like all these landmines. If you're walking across a landmine field, you want to avoid landmines. Uh, when you're in conflict with people or, and there's stuff going on, we call them landmines, subjects that you never want to bring up or talk about because if you do, you could get blown up, right? Like a landmine. So there's several landmines that the author intentionally steps on and blows things up. The people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh returned home, parting from the people of Israel, which apparently the other two tribes, two and a half tribes, weren't part of the people of Israel, um, which is in the land of Canaan. And now they go to the land of Gilead. And they possess by themselves by the command of the Lord through Moses. Now, if you know and have been following some of the history here, but if you read, if you have a background of all the history, you're sitting here going, oh my, this isn't good. Several things happen here. First of all, it is, there's this division in there because you see the two and a half tribes, which if you're thinking Israel, and you normally think here's the Mediterranean Sea right here, here's North Africa, and Israel's like this little thing right here, but the river Jordan, you know, goes, divides the land, and so you have nine and a half tribes that are on the west side of the Jordan River, and you've got not two and a half tribes on the east side of the Jordan River. Does that make sense? You kind of remember geography a little bit? So we're going to call them the west siders and the east siders, Okay. So the east siders, two and a half tribes, look at the way the author describes them. You've got the two and a half tribes who just get named as for their tribe, but then you've got the people of Israel. The nine and a half tribes get called the people of Israel. The two and a half tribes don't. That'll leave a mark. Not only that, you go on and you see, oh, they're in the land of Canaan. So the west siders are in the land of Canaan. The east siders are in the land of Gilead. This is a reference back to another thing. In Genesis, God comes to Abraham and he says, I'm going to give you this land that you are in, which is called Canaan. This is the promised land, the original promised land. And now you're reading this going, and I read this, and I'm like, well, wait a minute. I thought it was all promised land. Well, no, it, uh, it is and it isn't. There's the original promised land, and then there's this other land that, that came not out of a promise. And if you go and you read back in Numbers, chapter 25, I think, or 20, uh, Numbers 32, what happened was they were in the land. They were actually coming up from wandering, about ready to take the land. And they liked the, the east, east siders, right? The two and a half tribes loved this land that was on the east side of the Jordan. They said, hey, can we have this for our own? We'd like to have it. It's great for pasture. It's great for flocks, all that kind of thing, raising animals. We want it for our own. Moses gets ticked off, accuses them of being whatever, and, and he's all hot and bothered by it. And then they find that he says, you guys are just trying to shirk your duties. You're not going to help us out. You just want your land. And, and they said, no, 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 no. We'll, we'll fight with you. We'll do the whole thing. He says, okay. Well, then you can have the land. 
But if you read in that passage, nowhere do those two and a half tribes, the Eastsiders, ever pray about it. It's never mentioned. Nowhere does Moses seek the Lord about this. They just do it. Now, God backs up Moses because Moses is God's man, but it was never promised by God. Which brings up the other unusual part of this, if you read in Joshua 14, which we covered those six or eight chapters that was all about who gets what land, Joshua chapter 14, the nine and a half tribes on the west side, the west siders, right, they wait. They wait to draw lots. And they do this because they want the land that God wants them to have and chooses for them rather than what they think they should have which is way different than the two and a half tribes. And there's this undercurrent that's going on here. There's an unspoken thought that the two and a half tribes were greedy, jumped ahead of the line, didn't trust God, now took land that wasn't part of the promised land. And, and just to even cement this further, if you read when the manna, you know, they're getting manna from heaven, right, every day. The manna doesn't stop when they enter the land of Gilead over here, the east side. They're in the land of Gilead and still receiving manna. It stops right as they're about to cross over into Canaan, the promised land. And so what's going on here is there is this undercurrent that is flowing in the nation. The nine and a half tribes, the west siders, the two and a half tribes, the east siders, who's in the real land, who's not in the real land, who really trusts God, who doesn't trust God, who's really the people of Israel, who's not. And you're going to see that reoccur, this phrase, people of Israel, and these two and a half tribes, and the distinctions and the separation, you're going to see that throughout this whole passage over and over and over and over again. And it's like the author is trying to hammer home, there is something wrong, there is division, there's this, all is not well in, in Israel. And so what ends up happening is they go on in verse 10 and they come to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half tribe of Manasseh, the east siders, right? Build there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. Now, this is not good. Stop right there. Don't read ahead. Don't read ahead. You'll ruin it, all right? So um, it's not good. Building an altar is a really big no-no, all right? God said it three different times, once in Exodus, twice in uh, Deuteronomy. He said, do not build any altars. In fact, I want you to go and destroy every altar that has been built. There should only be one altar in Israel, and it's the altar for me because there's only one being in this earth universe that deserves what happens at an altar, which is the sacrifice of a life. Nobody else deserves that except for me. And no, no one, none, nothing will happen around an altar except that it is for me and worship of me. And then he goes on to say, hey, this is how you will do this. And he talks about how you do this sacred thing in a very sacred manner with very sacred tools and that whole thing, protect it. So he says, no altars, no altars, no altars. Everybody knows about that. And they also have had history of erecting altars and having God judge them. 
and really bad history of people dying in judgment and plagues because of altars they built. Aaron built one right after they got out of the land, right? They, they worshiped this golden calf and did all this stuff, and, and God sent a plague. Not good. Big no-no. And they go and they build an altar of imposing size. Like they didn't try to do a little tiny one, just hide it over here. They did a big one. And the people of Israel, interestingly enough, Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben, the east siders, all right, we're just going to call them that, have built the altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. Stop right there, don't read ahead. Do you see where they build it? So you got the east siders and you got the west siders. The east siders are the one who build the altar, they don't build it on their land. They build it on the west side's land. You're like, that takes a lot of guts. You're building an altar, which is a big no-no, and you're not even doing it on your own property. You're doing it on your brother's property. You think they need it. (laughs) Verse 12, and when the people of Israel heard of it, the west siders, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered together at Shiloh to make war against them. Wow. Wow. We go from, I love you, man, to, I'm going to kill them. I'm going to kill them all. Like, seriously, this all happened within, like, less than a week. How in the world does this happen where we are, like, one, and we're awesome, and you're great, and have my blessing? Joshua gives the coveted blessing to, now we are going to destroy them. So they send off some people, Phineas, the the people of Israel gathered together and they sent to the east siders in verse 13, Phineas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, and with him 10 chiefs, one from each of the tribal families of Israel, every one of them the head of a family among the clans. Hold on there and then we'll we'll talk about what they say. Uh, Who's Phineas? Well, uh, go back and there was a moment about eight years ago, seven and a half, eight years ago, Israel was struggling with what? Guess, worshiping at an altar. It was Baal. Baal is the god of fertility. You can see why Israel always struggled with, I don't think I have to explain that, do I? Um, can understand, if you don't understand the god of fertility and the worship rites, go look that up. We don't have to talk about that here. But uh, Israel forever struggled with Baal, always worshiping at the altars of Baal. And one of the Israelite men, they were, God was saying, I'm going to wipe you out. And so there's this revival starting to happen among, among a remnant there in Israel. And they're saying, look, we've got to repent and we've got to purify the nation. And in the middle of the service, an Israelite walks in, a man walks in with one of the women from Baal worshiping and has the audacity just to walk right by while they're doing this whole revival repentance thing. And Phineas gets a spear and goes, kills both of them out of judgment for what they're doing. And God looks at Phineas and says, that is a man who understands my holiness and my reputation and my honor. And he ends up giving Phineas a forever priesthood in his family line for his love and passion for God and his holiness. So they send Phineas, which everybody in the nation knew Phineas, had a reputation for being passionate about God. They sent him with 10 of the leaders. So this is no small meeting. This is pretty significant to send the heads of the tribes. 
And they come to the East Siders, and in verse 16, they say, Thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, which is the whole? You're missing two and a half tribes. Again, another little dag- a dagger, a little jab of who's in, who's out, or who's not all in. So thus says the whole congregation of the Lord, what is this breach of faith that you've committed against the God of Israel in turning away this day from following the Lord by building yourselves an altar this day in rebellion against the Lord? Have we not had enough of the sin at Peor from which yet, even yet we have not cleansed ourselves and for which there came a plague upon the congregation of the Lord? That's the, the event that I was just talking about with Phineas that you too must turn away this day from following the Lord. And if you too rebel against the Lord today, then tomorrow he'll be angry with the whole congregation of Israel. But now if the land of your possession is unclean, ow, pass over into the Lord's land where the Lord's tabernacle stands. You see the, you see the division even here. And take for yourselves a possession among us, which is really cool. They're gonna share their own land with them. Come back to us, get on the west side of the river. Only do not rebel against the Lord or make us rebels by building for yourselves an altar other than the altar of the Lord our God. Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the matter of devoted things and wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. So they come and they they level all of these charges. I mean, it's incredible accusations. They accuse him of a breach of faith not following the Lord, building an altar to false gods, comparing them to those who sleep with the enemy, suggesting their lands unclean, being rebels, comparing them to Achan and his sin. And that guy, if you don't remember that story, they were in a battle. God said, all, all the plunder is mine. Nobody takes any of it. It's all devoted to me. And Achan took some of it for himself and, and ended up Israel losing a battle and a bunch of soldiers died. And then ultimately they found out it was Achan and his whole family died along with him. And they're saying, you're just like Achan, or, or this is like Achan. And, and, and the problem, you can understand it from the West Sider's point of view that when God gets angry, when people start disobeying, people are judged. The whole nation is held accountable for the sin of one. And so you can understand why they're taking this so seriously. But if there wasn't a division before, there certainly is now. And one of the things that sticks out to me is we move into conflict and and how do we do these things? And it is so difficult. It is so hard to move into conflict well. And I think one of the most dangerous things about conflict is when we go in with assumptions and our whole attack is based on assumptions. This is so funny. Talk about practice what you preach. I, I came out of the service, had to talk to somebody, and I had something, it wasn't a conflict, like conflict. It was, uh, I just had some assumptions, I thought we were doing it this way, and it was, so I came in saying, hey, why did we do this? And rather than, rather than going in a different way, I just went in with my assumptions and immediately went from that point of view. It is so hard not to go in to disagreements and conflicts with assumptions. It's, it's almost impossible. Because what happens is, with assumptions, is you're going by your experience. So what you see, well, I'm clearly seeing this the right way. I see what happened there. You clearly hear what's being said, right? 
we're thinking, we're putting it through our grid, and, and our experience doesn't lie to us. This is what we're perceiving. And we can make assumptions so quickly. You look at the West Siders, they're in one moment saying, we're lifelong brothers, this is awesome, you guys rock, and the next moment, they're making assumptions, and they're gonna kill them. All based on assumptions. And even when they come to them, the assumptions are turned then into accusations. And there's a little bit of wiggle room, but not much. They accuse them of all kinds of things. You ever been in conflict where your, your assumptions have started the conversation, led the conversation, and you get in the middle of this and you realize, uh-oh, I came in with all this heat and with all this anger and I could be completely off. I think Phineas and the 10 elders here did incredible damage with their approach. Even the way this author writes the story, we find ourselves, as the story unfolds, rooting for the East Siders. The West Siders come in, guns blazing, full of assumptions, and now, how in the world do you take back all of these accusations? You can say you're sorry, but you've said them. The words are out. You can't unsay words, right? Even though you apologize. These are going to roll around in their heads. And if there wasn't division, which there was, this only made it worse. So let's look at the response. The East Siders, the two and a half tribes, say this, the mighty one, God the Lord, the mighty one, God the Lord. He knows and let Israel know, its, or itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today. For building an altar to turn away from following the Lord, or, or do not spare us today for, turn, for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it, may the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in time to come, your children might say to our children, what do you have to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You people of Reuben and people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. Therefore we said, let us now build an altar, not for burnt offerings or for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you and between our generations after us that we do perform the service of the Lord in his presence with our burnt offerings and sacrifices and peace offerings so your children will not say to our children in time to come, you have no portion in the Lord. And we thought if this should be said to us or to our descendants, which they were feeling it already, 
in time to come, we should say, behold, the copy of the altar of the Lord, which our fathers made, not for burnt offerings, not for sacrifice, but to be a witness between us and you. Far be it from us that we should rebel against the Lord and turn away this day from following the Lord by building an altar for burnt offering, grain offering, or sacrifice other than the altar of the Lord our God that stands before his tabernacle. Five times they talk about what this altar is. It's not this, it's not this, it is this, it's not this, it's not this. And you, I, I wish I could have been in there in that moment to see Phineas and the 10 elders sit there and go, oh. Wah, wah, wah. There was division. And they were feeling it. I mean, you see this phrase here, right? The, the phrase is, you have no portion in the Lord. They were feeling that. Nine and a half tribes get to call people of Israel. They're in the promised land. We're just less than. The question I wonder is whether the two and a half tribes did this on purpose or was this all an accident? If it was an accident, they were just naive. Like they build the altar and you're just innocently doing it like, hey, this would be so cool, this would be awesome, and, and not even thinking about how the rest of Israel would perceive it. Which you would think that would be pretty naive given the history of how big a deal an altar is. And given the history and the fact that even Phineas and the 10 elders are like, what in the world, don't you know our history? Makes me think they did it on purpose. They did it on purpose, one, they wanted their kids to know about it, but they did it on purpose. And I think it pointed out the conflict that has been going through underneath the surface that nobody could talk about. And it proved their point. You guys are treating us differently already. They got the land maybe not the right way. They got the land that maybe God didn't promise ultimately to Abraham. You, you can see this. And the response of Phineas and the 10 elders confirms what they've been experiencing. You guys don't really think we have a portion in the Lord. I can see why they did it. Wouldn't die for either one. But as you think about conversations and conflict that you are in and disagreements. I, I read uh, or actually was listening to a CD on leadership a number of years ago and they said you can measure the health of a family, uh, a church, organization, business by the number of conversations you are not having. Measure the health of a family, even a marriage, a church, a business, by the conversations, the amount of conversations you are not having, which means, is everybody avoiding the elephant in the room? Is everybody sweet? I'm seeing heads go, mm. <laughs> amen, brother. <laughs> Sweep it under the rug. Don't walk across that minefield, right? Everybody's got a mess in their family. I am 100% accurate. I <laughs> Everybody sitting here, everyone 
has relational mess in their family, at church, in the business. Are you having the right conversations? Are people sweeping things under the rug? Can you as a husband or a wife be approached and be wrong? It's a real question whether Phineas is going to be able to admit he's wrong because he came in so certain and so aggressive. And that's hard to pull back from. Can the leaders of your church, your business, be wrong, be approached? Can you talk about the hard things? That's one of the reasons why I, I went right back out to make sure. I just apologized right away because I'm like, I'm going to get it. I'm, I, I know it's going to come here. I was wrong. <laughs> I might as well head it off now. Apologize. Fortunately, it wasn't a big deal, but I just think, can we admit we're wrong? Some of you, this is a very difficult thing because it's so complex, and, and how do you know when to confront and, and should you confront? And, and, and I know that some of us here have the spiritual gift of not giving a rip what people think about us, <laughs> but a lot of us don't have that spiritual gift. Um, and for those of us who don't, it's scary actually talking about what really needs to be talked about. You can get killed doing that. People can just, I mean, they can just unload on you and you just want to resolve it. And even if you try to handle it right, and even if you come in all the right ways and you've done it, it still can go bad. And so how many of us here are on, are living in vows that say, I'll, I'll never say that, I'll never confront, I won't, I'm not going to do that, I won't. And, and you're perpetuating unhealth. And, and to the degree that, not Scott Brooks, to the degree the Holy Spirit is talking to you right now, listen to his voice. Because this is a dangerous thing, this kind of a message to encourage people to start conflict. And I don't want anybody to say, well, Scott told me to. Because <laughs> I'm dragged into it. Um, you need to pray. But I I'm certain that God would have some of us actually move into the middle of conflict and say things that we're avoiding. You might want to do it with somebody else if it's very difficult for you to do that. You don't do it like Phineas and bring 10 people, but you may go with somebody else. Go with somebody else that's a friend or even somebody that that other person trusts, and, and then they can actually take you both out. <laughs> They'll say, no, this is your mess, or no, that's their mess, and, and both people walk away knowing it's fair. It's an idea. Love covers a multitude of sins is what Paul's saying, and, and that's the other side of this thing, is when do, when do you just let love cover this, and, and when do you actually have to speak into something? And uh, I don't know. That, that's a hard one. When I was here, I did a lot of, uh, early on in the, I still do dumb stuff apparently, but I did a lot more dumb stuff when I first got here. And, and that mature generation of Christians 
covered over a lot of my stuff with love. They did, and uh, still do, and many of you do. Like, do you have to talk about everything? If it's not really sin, but it's an accident you got hurt, or, or you're, how much do you talk about it? How much do you don't? I don't know. It's, a, it's real confusing, this whole thing to me. I'm still confused by it, and I still don't know sometimes. And, and you may be in the middle of that confusion. I am too. That I don't know what the balance is, but I think it's what does it look like to ask God, Lord, is this a time to actually move into it or a time to just cover it with love? And I, I don't know. I know less now than I did a long time ago. So what ends up happening, Phineas and the, the 10 guys that are with them hear this, and it says this in verse 30, they heard it and it was good in their eyes. And they said, today we know that the Lord is in our midst because you've not committed this breach of faith against the Lord. Now you've delivered the people of Israel from the hand of the Lord. And so they returned in verse 32 and they told everybody, brought back word. In verse 33 it says, the report was good in the eyes of the people of Israel. And the people of Israel blessed God. Thank you, Lord. And spoke no more of making war against them to destroy the land where the people, the Eastsiders, lived. The Eastsiders called this altar witness, for they said it's a witness between us that the Lord is God. You know, as you move into conflict and a division or you're living in it, here's some thoughts that I, I wonder if Phineas and those 10 guys would probably consider or reconsider how they would have gone into it. But if you're in the middle of something and you're on the front end or you're, you're having conflict, um, we talk a lot about what does it mean to give, um, to fill the gap with trust? What does it mean to give the benefit of the doubt? Kind of interchangeable. See, what the, the nine and a half tribes didn't do was they didn't trust the two and a half tribes. They just spent seven years with these guys. They shed blood together. These guys fought for God. These guys weren't part of the tribes that actually initiated rebellion. Those two and a half tribes weren't a part of that ever. And they never trusted them. They never thought, well, wait a minute. I know who they are. They love the Lord. They've never walked away from God. We've never seen them do this. They've built an altar. Maybe we don't understand what's going on, but we're going to trust what we know about them, and we're going to go talk to them. And then they go to him, and, and they, sh they should have said, hey, look, we've got this life with you guys. We know you love God, so what's up with the altar? Can you tell us why you guys built that? That conversation would have gone so differently. And the fallout from that, there wouldn't have been any because the two and a half tribes would have felt like, hey, they trust us. Hey, they actually do believe that we're part of this community. But instead, they just, got, they just got an earful of accusations that you can't get out of your mind even though they apologize and said, hey, this is good. All they know is that the nine and a half tribes just really thought the worst of them right in a split second. What does it look like for you to give the benefit of the doubt, to fill gaps in with trust and to go, wait a minute, I know this person loves the Lord. I know this person's trying to move towards Christ and to people. Maybe I don't understand everything. Perhaps I don't have all of the facts. If we slow down assumptions with that, 
with trust. It does wonders for conflict. We don't have as much conflict. If you're in the middle of one that's been going on for 10, 20 years, 30 years, that's harder to do. And part of the other side of that is, is it's difficult. The story ends and it seems great, but the author doesn't resolve that division that's there. He leaves it. And it actually is a foreshadow of conflict to come because it comes. And so the nine and a half tribes ultimately were right about that land. That land was dangerous to live in. And those were the first tribes to go and to wander from God. I mean, there's something accurate about their view of it. They're looking at it going, guys, just come over to the promised land God gave us. There's something about that. But it's not what they chose. And so how do you live together in relationship when, when you see people going different directions and, and you're wondering and, and it's hard? And what it requires is for us, if you just simply have this, see what's going to happen is they have the conversation, but if that's all they have, they're stuck there forever. And what it requires is new experiences, new times of relating, new moments where you're building trust again. I remember I deeply hurt a pastor I was under in Denver, Colorado back in the 90s, late 90s, and uh, led a rebellion against him. It was awful. I got confronted on it, and uh, lo and behold, I discovered it was my fault, and uh, that was a horrible moment, and, and that was with the pastor and about eight others, so not ten, but eight worked, um, and they all said, it's your mess, and uh, I just remember going down with Brad to his basement afterwards, and I was, I was just broken. I was just so broken, and, uh, and uh, it's a hard night, <clears throat> and he just said, Scott, he's like, I'm committed to you, I'm committed to you. I'm not quitting on you. He says, this hurts. This hurts a lot. But he says, we're going to work through it. We're going to keep meeting every week. He says, we're going to get through this. You just watch and see. It's going to happen. Life's not over, but we'll work through it. And so we kept meeting, and he kept loving me. And he kept, he kept moving into my life. And, you know, two months, three months, four months later, I mean, my confession was as famous as my sin. I knew I messed up. And that helps a lot. Um, but our relationship healed because he invested and he kept working on new memories, building trust. And maybe that's what it looks like for you is to start to build trust. And the story ends, you go, oh, it doesn't end totally with everybody like all happy because you can tell it's still there. But with God, anything's possible. It may take 10 years, it may take 20 years, it may take 30 years. I was talking to a guy after the first service. He said, he said, I became a Christian in my 20s. He said, I hated my mom. Absolutely hated her. Horrible story. And I called up his mom after he became a Christian. He says, one of the first things I did, I knew I had to do it. And he said, Mom, I forgive you. And uh, it's just a hard life this guy had had. And she said, for what? And he said, that started this journey. Everybody laughed at me because I was a Christian. Nobody in his family was a Christian. And there was so much conflict and so much fighting and so much hatred <clears throat> and anger. He said, but 30 years later, she became a Christian. And he's like, don't, he's like, that message there at the end, he says, just make sure you tell people, with God, it's possible. With God, it's possible conflict that seems like it never resolves, anger, 
all this division. Pray, pray, pray. He's like, it, it works. God does it. He says, my whole family got saved. Not just my mom, but my whole family. She was the last one. So if you're in conflict, I, I don't know the path forward because it's so messy and it's so hard, but I do know this idea of, of making sure we don't move on assumptions, but fill in the, that gap with trust and the benefit of the doubt and trying to establish new moments of love, new moments of trust and prayer. And, and I don't know, it's just living this with Christ in the middle of the mess. And I'm so confused on how to do it in each situation, probably like you are. But I, I think with Christ, he can lead us forward. So let me pray. Lord, I, I just ask for us, Lord, and any conversations you're putting, or any people you're putting on our mind right now, Holy Spirit, would you come and, and would, you, would you, one, settle our hearts? Would you also, second, just take this out of our control and just make this so certain to us how to move forward? May we go forward with you. I pray for, uh, in our relationships, I pray for healing. I pray for healing in our families. I pray for healing at work, maybe even in church. Restoration. Amen.